0: Good evening, everyone. It's a hot, but moonlit, beautiful night here in Tucson, Arizona. We welcome you to the Stewart Observatory, and we welcome those of you who are listening and watching us on the World Wide Web via iTunes U or streaming from the Stewart Observatory website. Uh, the very first Stewart public evening was held in September of 1922, 91 years ago and so normally this would be the 92nd season of public evenings except we, we meaning my forebears, didn't have public evening lectures during the four years of World War II. So this is actually the 88th year that we at Stewart Observatory have offered lectures to the public for free and made our telescope available for public viewing. At the conclusion of tonight's lecture, our 21-inch Raymond E. White Jr. Telescope will be open for public viewing and the moon will be first on the list of things to look at tonight. Uh, Also, if there are any students who are here for an assignment, I am the person who will validate your assignments at the conclusion of the question and answer period unless you're in Professor Holberg's class. Professor Holberg is here and he will note your presence for his class. Before I introduce tonight's speaker, um, I wanted to, first of all, hope that you picked up some of the flyers on on the desk as you came in. There's the list of all of our public evening lectures uh, for the season. And we now have a new website at Stewart Observatory. If you haven't gone to our website at www.as.arizona.edu, You haven't noticed it. The thing is, is that I wanted to show you where you can find the podcasts for the public evenings. Uh, All of our talks are listed down here in the bottom right, but that includes our colloquia as well. Even when you click on podcasts, you'll get them all mixed together. So the the best place to go is way at the bottom of the website where it says for public, and you click more. And then here are all the public outreach events and, and programs we have here at Stewart Observatory, I would click on public evening lecture series. Here is our schedule for the fall 2013 semester, and if you click on this link, click here to stream podcasts of previous public evening lectures, there they are. Our last lecture was the one we held in April for the 90th anniversary of the dedication of the observatory, and you can, uh, as long as you have Microsoft Silverlight installed on your computer, the plug-in for the browser, you can play any of the podcasts for the public evening lectures that you may have missed. On the back of that flyer, our sister department, the Lunar and Planetary Laboratory, also offer public lectures. They're offering three this uh, semester on Wednesday nights. And there are the dates, but we conveniently put the, the talk titles and speakers on the back side of the flyer for the public evenings. And so you are welcome to attend any of those uh, should you find it interesting. Finally, uh, there's another flyer. Uh, We're gonna have a book signing on October 14th. Uh, Professor Chris Impey has a new book out. And so I just thought I'd give you some detailed information about what his new book is all about. So lots of things going on this semester, lots of good things, and I hope that you are able to attend more of these lectures and other astronomy related, space science related events here at the University of Arizona. So, first talk of the season. I figured we put the word black hole in the title and people will show up. And I, and I have a feeling we're gonna set an attendance record for a September talk, because usually our first talk in September isn't that well attended. Our speaker tonight is one of our postdoctoral fellows. His name is Dr. Christopher Greer. Dr. Greer received his bachelor's degree in physics from Northwestern University. That's the one Big Ten school where you have to get good grades, okay? I'm from Ohio, I know. Then, he didn't go very far for graduate school. He moved from Northwestern to the University of Chicago, and he received his PhD in astronomy and astrophysics from the University of Chicago, and upon graduation, he came here so he is uh, working in his first job as a baby astronomer right out of graduate school and uh, starting off his astronomical career and he is going to give us a talk on imaging a black hole from the south pole dr greer all
1: right uh thank you for coming out tonight it's a real honor to be able to give one of these, uh, considering they've been going on for almost 90 years. Um, as Tom said, I'm relatively new here. I showed up last October, so thank God the first, my first summer is finally winding down. <laughs> um, we're, we're in the middle of preparing for a January trip here, which is the balmy summer of the South Pole, and it can't come soon enough as far as I'm concerned. I, I'm going to be talking a little bit about black holes, and black holes necessitate talking about general, general relativity. And anytime someone brings up relativity, people throw their hands in the air and wait, say, you know, moan and complain. Oh my God, tensor calculus, what's a killing vector? Uh, what's a, you know, the Bianchi identities? And I, I really don't need to get into all of that. So for our purposes tonight, I found this quote by John Wheeler, who is a physicist who's the guy that actually coined the term black hole in the 1960s, actually, so it's a fairly recently term, recent term, that matter tells space how to curve and space tells matter how to move. It's a symbiotic relationship. And I did my PhD thesis on galaxy clusters. So this is a good way, I think, for to understand kind of what this means. You have a, a cluster of galaxies here where there's 100, to a 1,000 galaxies like the Milky Way. This happens to be ABEL 2218. This is a Hubble Space Telescope image. And galaxy clusters are the most massive things that we could call gravitationally bound in the universe. And that mass, all that dark matter in between these brightly lit up galaxies warps the space. And you can see arcs behind it. And as light from a distant galaxy is emitted from the stars in those galaxies and traverses space to our telescope at Earth, this distorted space causes the light rays to follow this curved pattern. This is what I mean by matter telling space how to curve. And the photons, the light from these galaxies, is a test particle, so to speak, that follows this curved space. Now, I just said that these are the most massive things in the universe that we could call gravitationally bound. The the actual truth of it is, though, that they're fairly dispersed. They're not extremely dense. It's not an extreme gravitational environment. A black hole, on the other hand, for our purposes, is just a region where there's enough mass that is compacted in such a tight spot that space-time is curved so that once a light test particle goes in, it doesn't come out. And that's going to be my definition of black holes for tonight. And now, general relativity, this sounds very highfalutin or, or maybe something you're never going to encounter, but does anyone actually recognize what these two things are? Just raise your hands. Exactly. So this is one of the 20-some-odd GPS satellites that orbits the Earth at 22,000 kilometers. And as you can imagine, the further away you get from Earth, the less space is warped by its gravitational field, and therefore you're in a regime where, thanks to relativity, space and time are linked. Clocks actually behave differently where these GPS satellites are relative to where they are on the surface of the Earth. In fact, it works out to be about 38 nanoseconds every second. And if you figure your A GPS receiver is basically, the satellite says, hello, here I am, and this is what time it is. And then your receiver collects those messages from several satellites and then triangulates where you are. Um, If you're off by uh, 30 nanoseconds, that's a meter. And so, 30 nanoseconds every second, it would add up to be something like 11 kilometers a day that GPS would break if general relativity wasn't taken into account. So if you've ever been like me on your first couple of days here and not known where Old Maine was relative to Stewart Observatory and relied on your phone GPS, you've owed a debt at some level to Einstein. So just because what I'm going to be talking about seems like it's very far away and extremely unlikely to ever impact your life, well, you never know. The 100th anniversary of Relativity being published is coming up in 2015, so it's not that long ago. That public service announcement being over, I'm gonna give you a bit of a lay of the land. So we live here, which is the ground on the earth. And I'm talking about, or I'm gonna tell you about how we're going to look at the center of the galaxy and study this supermassive black hole there. And on the surface of it, if you unpack that statement, it seems a little bit implausible, because what does it even mean to find the center of the galaxy? It turns out, so these two here are the Keck telescopes, and I just found out that there's a graduate student here who was running one of these telescopes when this picture was taken, which is kind of cool. And what you see here are the the sodium lasers that the Keck telescopes use to make artificial stars that allow them to correct for the the turbulence in the atmosphere, looking at what we now know as the center of the galaxy. But it wasn't so long ago, uh, you know, so after the Revolutionary War, before the Constitution was ratified, that astronomers really sort of took a first stab at what is it actually what does our neighborhood look like? Up until then, we had been concerned with the motions of the stars in the sky, but less so about where they were. And so this dude, uh, I guess he's a dude, uh, William Herschel uh, built the largest telescope in the world at the time in his backyard, and with the help of his daughter, I believe, went out, sister, sister, excuse me, Um, and mapped the stars that he could see in the relative positions on the sky. And then by assuming that each star was the same as the sun, the same brightness, established a distance to them. And the observed distribution placed us right smack dab in the middle. And this is more or less the state of the art for the next 100, 150 years. It wasn't until the 1920s when we had this so-called great debate, which might come up in your... uh, introductory classes between the illustrious Harlow Shapley and the rather stern looking Heber Curtis. They came together in 1920 to discuss a number of burning astronomical questions in the early 1920s. And I think there's an article by Virginia Trimble which lists the history of this. She's a very good astronomy historian. But for for our purposes, the question of what is in the center? And is the sun in the center or are we in the suburbs? And it turns out Harlow Shapley was a pioneer in the study of these these black lanes here in the Milky Way. And these black lanes aren't a dearth of stars. In fact, what it is is the dust that permeates the disk of the Milky Way actually blocks out the, lo- the visible light of the stars from behind it. So, in fact, Har- Shapley claims, and his later astronomers have more or less made observations that agree with this, that if Campus here is the center of the Milky Way. The sun is more like in Marana or Oro Valley, uh, you know, out in the suburbs. If I were in Chicago, I would say we are in Naperville, but we're no long, I'm no longer there. Fortunately though, so this was about 1920. Fortunately about this time, astronomers realized that, oh, visible light, what our eyes see is a relatively narrow part of the electromagnetic spectrum. In fact, light extends longer as the, as the light gets less energetic, becomes radio waves, the same things that pick up Justin Bieber when you're listening in your car. You're, you can think of the antenna on your car. I guess they don't make them metal anymore, these little plastic things, are telescopes that pick up Justin Bieber out of the atmosphere. And it, whoops, as they get more energetic, the photons become X-rays or ultraviolet and even gamma and cosmic rays. And there are astronomical events out in space that generate light across the electromagnetic spectrum. And so this uh, graphic is from the excellent webcomic XKCD. So, you know, it's not, you know, we don't mark off where the shouting car dealership commercials are, but it's, it's worth looking at if you've never gone to look at it. And so, more or less coincident with the great debate of Shapley and Curtis, we have our own Charles, or Carl Jansky, who, like a lot of radio astronomers early on, wanted to make really clear phone calls. And so Jansky wasn't necessarily an astronomer, he, he sort of fell into it accidentally, where he built this telescope, even though it doesn't look like a telescope, it looks a little more like an antenna, but functionally they're the same thing, to try and map out how to make very clear wireless communications. And lo and behold, he found a signal in there that it showed up to him as static, that he couldn't get rid of. It wasn't inherent in his electronics, his broadcasting, his receiving equipment. It seemed to get brighter during the day and dimmer at night, this signal. So naturally he assumed it's the sun, but after observing it over the course of the year, this source seemed to separate from the sun as the constellations wheeled across the night sky through the season. It was located, it looked more and more like it was located in the constellation Sagittarius now, astronomers are very creative, so typically when they find the, the brightest star in a constellation would be Alpha Leo or something. Radio astronomers are even less creative, so he discovered something that we now call Sagittarius A because it's the first thing bright radio source discovered in Sagittarius. And likewise, there's a Cygnus A and a Centaurus A and all sorts of great things like that. Now, that dust blocks the visible light to the center of the galaxy. And so we've discovered that there's something something unusual there, there's a bright radio source which we didn't actually seem to really expect radio emission from outer space. And so as the radio technology improved, now things are starting to look more like a telescope, only this is one part of a system of telescopes. We're pointed at Sagittarius A and they found a localized region that where the gas seemed to be emitting like, a, like, a, a, like an electric stove element would, as it heats up, it gives off light, this seems to be emitting at an impossibly high temperature, 10 million degrees. And what's more, it's located in a region less than a tenth of an arc second in size. Now I just inserted this, so what does it mean to be a tenth of an arc second? Um, this, is a, this is a handy thing to know So if you take your index finger, and depending upon how fat your fingers are, mine are fairly fat, if you hold it out at arm's length, it subtends anywhere from one degree. Sometimes people use their thumb and say two degrees on the sky. So you have a degree. Each degree has 60 arc minutes in it, and each arc minute has 60 arc seconds in it. So when you're talking about less than a tenth of an arc second, we're talking about something like 30,000th a 30,000th of the width of your finger, depending upon how fat it is. So something incredibly small, and things are going to get smaller here. I mean, that was just an upper limit on the size. And now today we know that the Galactic Center is a relatively complicated and interesting place. So this is a NASA image where in the orange you can see the emission detected by the infrared capabilities of the Hubble Space Telescope. So if you think back to that electromagnetic spectrum just redder than we can see with our eye. The, the honest-to-goodness red stuff in here is detected by the, spa- the Spitzer Space Telescope, which looks even further in the infrared. And this diffuse blue stuff is detected by the Chandra X-ray Telescope. So these are three of NASA's great observatories, all named after prominent astrophysicists. And they tell you about different things. Um, the Hubble Space Telescope image, for example, tends to find hotter gas. And so by hot, I mean 70 to 100 Kelvin above absolute zero. The red Spitzer gas, the longer wavelength stuff, less energetic photons, show cooler gas, still you know, many tens of degrees above absolute zero. And so this, is the, this red stuff is part of what's blocking our view of seeing things with a with Naked Eye Telescope. And then there's this blue stuff, which are x-rays, which are extremely energetic. It's the same x-rays that you you get get when you go to the dentist, only astronomically generated. And so here's Sagittarius A. And so the scale on here is about six arc minutes. So again, about a tenth of a degree is this little bar here. So you can think, okay, that's a tenth, you know, that's a degree. And so to get an idea of the sense of scale here, when you go out to a dark site outside of Tucson and look up and see the galaxy. So, Sagittarius A as a whole here is, you know, a few arc minutes in size, and right down there in the core is Sagittarius A star. Here's an image from the Keck telescopes that I showed earlier. Now, a lot of advances have happened in the last 20 years or so, thanks to the development of two key technologies. The first is infrared detectors, and the second is adaptive optics. You're looking at something very small, you don't want to have your image blurred out by the atmosphere. And so, I don't know if you can see it. I can just barely see it on this projector. Sagittarius A star is a little red lump here right at the center of this field. You see a lot of bright stars, some you know, nebular emission over here, um, a really bright star that's been... Uh, has some scattered light in it. And if you zoom in and watch Sagittarius A star over time, you can see that it gets brighter and dimmer. And it's extremely dim. It's, uh, it's well... In context for other things like it, it's about 300 times the intrinsic luminosity of the sun. Which sounds pretty impressive, the sun is pretty bright, don't go out and look at it with your eye. But for reasons that will become clear, this is kind of mysterious. How could the first radio source detected, you know, in localized in this really tiny space with such a high temperature, be so dim? So, again, this animation, I don't know if it shows it. Maybe it's too short of a time lapse. But if you look at our solar system and you follow the planets going around the sun, you know the Earth is about 93 million miles away from the sun, and you know that it takes about a year to get there, to get around. You can infer how massive the sun is based on Kepler's laws and a little bit of Newton's gravitation. We could do the same thing here and find out how massive is this thing that we're looking at. And so again, this is a group using the VLT in uh, a European group. These are stars pointed on Sagittarius star over the period of about 16 years. And so these really bright stars, much brighter than the luminosity of our sun, you can find this one here, which is called S2. In about 16 years, has completed almost an entire orbit. So the resolution element of this object is about 400 AU, and AU is the distance between the Earth and the sun. Pluto is at about 40 AU. So lar- this orbit is larger than the size of our solar system and then whips around here at in about 15 years, faster than Saturn goes around the sun. While it does so, it, it reaches a few percent, 1% of the speed of light. So this thing is really hauling here. And by looking at that and all these other stars for which they have partial orbits, you're able to ask, well, what is this thing that we're looking at here in the middle? And so here's a, a visualization of that with the orbits shown in S2, and I'll get to this little orange guy here in a second. But it turns out this thing is incredibly massive. It's, it's, it, it's more than, it's roughly four million times the mass of the sun crammed into an extremely small region, so small that they don't think it could be just a star cluster that we just, some, for some reason, can't see. Um, Also, it's a very active region. There's a lot of stuff going on here. So serendipitously, astronomers have discovered what they call G2, which is a cloud of gas. So you can see here the time on the bottom here left that is rapidly approaching a very close encounter with this black hole at the center of the galaxy. And people are dithering about when the closest approach is going to happen, but they're dithering on, on the order of months. So some people say it'll be the end of 2013. Some people say it'll be the beginning of 2014. But you can imagine astronomers around the world have pointed their telescopes at Sagittarius star to watch this thing fall into the black hole. So it goes on out to 2040 and that sort of thing. Um, and so even while people have been looking for this, they, they recently discovered a magnetar, which is a kind of collapsed giant star near Sagittarius star because people were just happened to be looking at it for this and found you know, something else which is really exciting, but I don't have time to go into So, some equations. Um, I was told some of you are maybe uh, engineers, so um, I'm going to get away with two equations, or try to. We're going to, so thanks to Einstein, his general relativity, makes a a very um, strong prediction of the radius of the black hole relative to its mass. And these other things here, g and c squared, 2 is just the number 2, don't worry about that. But G and C are, G is the Newton's gravitational constant, so you might have learned in high school about two masses attracting each other over the distance between them squared, that's that G. And C is the speed of light. We know those answers, we'll know those numbers to a reasonable precision. So if we think the black hole is four million times the size of the sun, based on these observations... That means the radius is going to be about seven and a half million miles. And that's, you're not going to be able to like buy a car that will drive you seven and a half million miles. But on astronomical scales, that's tiny. For example, that's about 8% of the distance between the Earth and the Sun, 8% of an AU. And just for reference, I, you know, once you start talking about these astronomical distances, it's hard to grasp. Mercury is about half an AU between the Earth and the Sun. So we're talking well four million times the mass of the Sun crammed well inside the orbit of Mercury. There's, there's really nothing else at this point that I'll, could be there other than a black hole. And so we, here we have angles again. So I talked about, again, your thumb is a degree. This is 50 micro arc seconds. So we're talking about millions of times smaller than your thumb on the sky. This is incredibly tiny. Or if you prefer more prosaic, it's like looking at the grapefruit that Neil Armstrong left on the moon from the Earth. Or a softball if you're more of a sports fan. That's, that's the kind of scale that we're talking about. I, I still don't have a good handle myself on what it means to look for a grapefruit on the moon. But that's, that's kind of the thing we're talking about. Now telescopes can tell you how small something, of some, a thing you can see, and it's basically related to the wavelength of the light you're looking at. Shorter wavelengths means you can see smaller things. That's good. But X-ray telescopes are really hard to build. You have to put them in outer space. So that's that's bad. And then we talk, then the diameter of the telescope. So if you have one millimeter radiation in a 200 meter telescope, that's one arc second resolution. And we need to go to 50 micro arc seconds. So let's see what we have on hand. Hubble Space Telescope, Keck, they're both two fabulous instruments. Hubble has probably the best thing that NASA has ever done. The diameter of that mirror is 2.4 meters. The main mirror is about 8 feet, you know, just this tall. The diameter on Keck is much larger, it's 10 meters, 30 feet. But the best resolutions they can do, even with this great technology of adaptive optics for Keck, is only about five hundredths of an arc second. We're, we're still not quite in, in the ballpark. We need a bigger telescope. So. We've built bigger telescopes. This is the NRAO three hundred foot telescope at the best astronomy radio astronomy site in West Virginia, and um, taken on November fifteenth, nineteen eighty eight. This is the same telescope on November sixteenth, nineteen eighty eight. It's it's really hard to build something that big, and so you know 200, a two hundred meter telescope, which is eh, this is close ballpark, you know that's the size of a football field. Um, still only gets us an arc second. We need something much, much bigger than that. Well, you know, we have a solution, though. As, as astronomers have been working at this for a long time, you always want better and better resolution. There's a technique called interferometry. So there's the Very Large Array, which is near Socorro, New Mexico. And if you haven't been, it's worth the trip. They're, it's really cool looking, sitting out on the, the plains of New Mexico. You see all of these telescopes. These telescopes are 25 meters in diameter. So they're much smaller than the thing that collapsed. But they're still, you know, no mean feat of engineering. And the technique of interferometry takes the light that one telescope sees and compares it to the light another telescope sees. And so for every different pair of telescopes, you make that comparison. And with some fancy math, you can simulate having a telescope that's the size of the largest separation that you have. It's like building, in this case, the... VLA can stretch out to 35 kilometers. It's like building a telescope that's 35 kilometers in size, only astronomers have been lazy and they've only filled in certain parts of it. Most of it we just don't bother filling in. So the reflective parts are relatively small, but at the same time we can drastically increase the resolution. So I said we needed a 200 meter telescope to get one arc second in resolution. Well, here, we don't even go down to one millimeter, but we can get a maximum resolution of 0.04 arc seconds by using this technique. Of course, there's trade-offs, because we don't fill in the full area of the mirror. We have to look at bright things, but relatively speaking from radio astronomy standards, Sagittarius star is still pretty bright. Not as bright as it could be, but still pretty bright. What we really need, though, to get 50 microarcseconds seconds is a telescope the size of the Earth. And so this, I don't know if you guys recognize it, but that is the Earth. Um, from this picture, you are, you, are st- you are sitting at Sagittarius star, or at least in the direction of Sagittarius star. And this is what the Earth looks like. You're looking right at the Pacific Ocean. Sagittarius star is in the southern sky. It's only up relatively, a relatively short period. And so by putting telescopes at all these different locations, We can simulate having a telescope the size of the Earth, only we've just done a really bad job, or you can argue, maybe it's even considering that we can link these telescopes is pretty amazing. Now, the EHT is a project that's been going on for several years, and this technique, which is called very long baseline interferometry, the baseline is the separation between two points here. These are very long, Chile to Hawaii has been going on for some years now and has primarily used three telescopes. So there's the Karma Interferometer, which sits about 250 miles north of LA. It's, if you're going out of LA and you want to drive to San Francisco but make a mistake and drive up the Eastern Sierras instead, you will run into Karma more or less. There's the SMA and the JCMT on top of Mauna Kea in Hawaii, which is worth the trip if you ever go vacation there. It's just a really gorgeous view. And then the submillimeter telescope, which is about two hours east of here on top of Mount Graham outside of Safford. And from these observations, they've detected Sagittarius star. They've measured its size. It's the highest resolution astronomy measurement that's ever been made, 37 microarcseconds. But right now, with these three telescopes, it's really hard to tell more than just the size of the object. To, to better simulate a telescope, we need to fill in this gap, this, this aperture a little bit better. And so that's where the future stations come in. So we have the LMT, the large millimeter, I believe, telescope in in Mexico, the ALMA interferometer, which is now online and will be added to the EHT soon in Chile, and the South Pole Telescope here at nowhere else but the South Pole. And so sampling the full extent of this aperture or as best you can do is really important to the image quality that you're gonna get out. And so you can see that the the telescope, and we want to go north, south, east, west, cover everything. So the South Pole Telescope here, with with its baselines in red here, sort of serves as the southern anchor. ALMA is the heavy hitter with the the 50 telescopes that are going to be combined into one. So that provides most of the signal to noise. But we here at the South Pole, which is being developed by the University of Arizona, the EHT receiver, is really the sort of the southern anchor of this object, of this project. So, the South Pole Telescope might have the best photography shot-to-shot shot of any telescope that I've seen. Um, I'm not biased. But first, um, I, uh, if, you, if you go to Antarctica, you run into these guys. So, um, the the bay, this is at McMurdo, and the bay is frozen for many months out of the year. In fact, if you're in Antarctica much past March or April, you get to stay there and for at least six months. Get to, I mean, I guess is a... Your, your choice of verb is up to you. But these, when the icebreaker comes through and breaks up some of the ice, uh, the penguins have now I guess figured out that you don't have to walk all the way across the ice to get to the water anymore, so they, they come and say hello. So this is shot by one of my colleagues. And so here's just a quick movie that, um, it's available on YouTube, it was shot by the American Museum of Natural History, that just shows some sights of the South Pole. This is in the C-130 aircraft that fly overhead here, only these have skis on them, which you don't need in Tucson. Ice runway, this is how you get, on a, you, you get in the back on a C-130 with like a crate of bananas and fly, uh, or whatever they happen to be moving down there, you're just cargo. South Pole, it really does look like a barber pole. This is a ceremonial pole. Um, there's 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 a true geographic pole, but they have to mark it every year because everything's on a glacier and shifts about 10 or 15 feet. This is the real geographic South Pole, 10 or 15 feet a year. You bundle up. The summer gets up to about minus 20 if it's really hot out. South Pole Telescope in action. You can see it kind of looks like a direct TV dish where you have the primary mirror. This is 10 meters in size, and then you have this boom that comes off the bottom of it. And the receiver on your direct TV dish is out at the end of the boom, same here. The receivers are all in this cabin, which is nice, because that way when you go in to work on it, you don't have to bundle up in your ECW gear. Um, I think there's a little bit more here. I paused it so I could talk, but, you know, the receiver opens up in that that bay. Big gears. This is the moon. So this is shot by someone who's there between basically Valentine's Day and Thanksgiving is how long you have to stay. You can see the Aurora Australialis, the Southern Lights. Big machine. About, weighs about 40,000 tons. And it moves extremely fast for a telescope that big. I, I don't know if you've seen telescopes this big, but this thing can, can book. Um, so you fly into New Zealand, get issued your, your um, extreme cold weather gear, your, your bunny boots, they're so-called and then you're off to the pole. So, I mean, it's, it's about a kilometer walk between the pole and the South Pole Telescope, the dark sector, it's called, although it, does, it only gets dark once a year. And this is what's going to be inside the receiver that we're building. We have these blocks downstairs in this building now. This is a state-of-the-art, what's called a mixer. And the trick with VLBI, Very Long Baseline Interferometry, is that, like, it's really hard to send data on the internet from the South Pole to Karma in California or Hawaii or to, to compare the information between the telescopes. So what we do instead, I like to explain, is we freeze the light and so we need to process the light down to a low enough frequency and then freeze it, you know, record it as fast as we can and as high fidelity as we can and freeze the light so that we can, store it onto a disk, and then mail those disks back to a central location. Here it's just outside of Boston at the MIT Haystack Observatory. But the light comes into the mixer here. It's the first thing that it sees after bouncing off, traveling 25,000 light years from Sagittarius star, bouncing off of our telescope into our receiver, goes into this thing, comes out into a process manageable form, and then we record it. This is what the inside of that cabin looks like on the boom. And so you notice that there's already something there. So South Pole Telescope has been around since 2007. It hasn't been idle, hasn't been waiting for us to add it to the EHT. In fact, none of these other telescopes that are involved in the EHT sit around waiting for us to get our act together. Because you can imagine trying to coordinate schedules all across the world and also coordinate weather. I mean, schedules are something we can handle, but it's very rare that you have great weather in Hawaii and the same time at the South Pole. Or Karma, or Mount Graham, or anywhere else you're going. And so it has a full time camera. And so our telescope is gonna sit behind here, our camera is gonna sit behind here piggyback so that when we do get our act together and the weather cooperates, we can, we can use the, the South Pole Telescope to do these observations. So we are going down, uh, there's one other person and I, in addition to the regular SBT team, going down in January to do some scouting and move all these cables around so that we can have a place to actually put our camera. Like I said, freezing the light requires very accurate clocks because if you take the data and you don't know what time it is, you're basically sunk. And it requires very fast recording media. So we use these really uh, fancy clocks, atomic clocks called masers, and they're accurate. So I said, you know, 38 nanoseconds on a second for the GPS is what matters. These are accurate to a trillionth of a second per second extremely accurate atomic clocks so that we know essentially on the scale of a few seconds they're perfect. So we know exactly what time the, the data that we record is recorded. We know it exactly at South Pole and we know it exactly at all the other stations so we can compare them later. And likewise, so this is a shot from this April up at the SMT. These black boxes here, they have stacks of terabyte disks now. So. Each stack is 16 terabytes of data, and they plug into these things, these boxes here. And right now, we're recording at about four terabytes an hour. So that's even that will even stretch Internet 2 from campus here. So the only the only way to get enough bandwidth is to take those disks, put them in a box, and put them in a FedEx truck. And so it's a very high bandwidth FedEx truck, but it's very very high latency. And this is only going to get worse. We, they've they've got new technology on the way. So the South Pole Telescope is going to join EHT for the 2015 observations in early 2015, and by then we'll be doing 16 terabytes an hour. That's a that's a lot of a lot of recording, and needless to say, there's a supercomputer basically back at MIT that does the comparisons for us. So I, I've yammered at you I've wow uh, for a long time about penguins. And so you might ask, well, what's the point? The, black hole, the, the South Pole looks really cool. I, I definitely want to go there. How do I get a job? Um, but why bother? And so here's a, a 3D relativistic simulation of a black hole like the one at the center of the Milky Way. And so you see this black hole here in the center. That's actually a shadow of the black hole. The light goes all the way around but the strong gravitational lensing casts a shadow right there in the center. That's a generic prediction of Einstein's relativity. And so these black holes, these generic predictions, are very simple objects, actually. There's only three parameters that are black hole uh, solutions in general relativity. And they're all described by their mass. We know the mass of Sagittarius. The stars go around it. It's four million times the mass of the sun. There's the angular momentum or the spin, of the object, and the charge. And we don't find large masses of charge floating free in the universe pretty much anywhere, so everyone expects that's basically zero. So the parameter of interest here is the spin. When people talk about this, how there's only three parameters, they tend to say black holes have no hair. They're not interesting. They're bald. They're boring. Sorry, I'm going to end up bald myself. But um, that's when people talk about the no hair theorem. And so I'm going to come back to that in a bit. So here's a an image from a simulation that sort of looks like this. You have a brightness enhancement on one side and a dim area on the other as the material goes around the black hole. And here's recovering images that the EHT might measure and be able to tell us something about the black hole. So, seven stations is about kind of where the situation is going to be in the beginning of 2015 when the South Pole Telescope joins. So, you can see that they're more or less. Uh, match what's going on here. But the fidelity gets really better as you fill in an aperture. The fidelity, by fidelity I mean how well you recreate the input image when you start adding more and more telescopes to this. So this is a, a long-term growth project. And, so like I said, the, 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 the big fundamental question right now about Sagittarius is what does it spin? And so here I, I've showed you something. This is a simulation again. We have, on, up here, this is with no gravity. And this is with gravity, the gravitational lensing, as the thing tilts. And you know, do we think that the, the orientation of the accretion flow onto Sagittarius star is tilted towards us, or are we looking down at tap on, um, top down? And the most observations suggest it's highly tilted. So I'll I'll replay that again. So what you have is you have the, the hot spot and then the lensed image of the hot spot. You saw that the that gravitational lens of the galaxy cluster had two galaxy images. And as it tilts, you can see that there's this beaming effect that comes around. And on here, over here we have um, curved light curves. How much beaming do we expect as the material goes around? This differs quite significantly for different values of A here, which is a spin. A goes between 0 and 1. It parameterizes how fast is the black hole spinning. One, it's about to spin itself apart. And A, it's not spinning at all. So this value changes as the black hole spins. So by going through and measuring and watching material fall, so this is again as a simulation of material falling onto the black hole. You can see the hotspot going around. And this below here is what's called the closure phase. Uh, don't worry too much about what it is. Suffice to say, it's a measurement by comparing three different stations. So here we're comparing Alma in Chile, Hawaii, and Karma. And this periodic structure you see here is highly suggestive of something going around. In fact, if you look at different trios, you, you, with many telescopes, you have many possible trios you can derive. You can constrain quite strongly what the, what the size of this object is, how it's inclined with the black hole spinning, a variety of model parameters, and understand watching material fall right down onto the event horizon of the black hole. Now, the most exciting thing is does Saturday Star have any hair? Um, the the, the Schwarzschild solutions, which, and later the Kerr solutions, which describe black holes in general relativity that predict this no hair theorem, are relatively simple. At the same time, we know that that other great 20th pillar of 20th century physics, quantum mechanics, describes very small things, whereas relativity does the very large things, and they should meet up somewhere in a And 20th century physics was remarkably successful in unifying forces other than gravity. In fact, they just found the last particle of the standard model of particle physics at the Large Hadron Collider. But gravity is still the odd odd one out. And so it's possible that Einstein could be wrong. And so the generic no hair prediction is that the shadow here of the black hole as the light gets bent out of our line of sight is perfectly circular. But it's possible, this is a very simple parameterization, uh, just a little tweak of Einstein's equations done by a former graduate student here and Demetrios Saltos, who's a professor here, that gives you things that don't look circular anymore. And so if you remember back to the image reconstructions that I showed earlier, that this is going to really require more stations, higher fidelity imaging. But it's a real possible avenue towards maybe finding something that is beyond general relativity. So I want want to leave you with something. So I brought my mom to one of these earlier, and I asked her at the end, well, what was the takeaway point? And she said that we don't understand anything. (laughs) So if if you take nothing else away from this, I want you to take away this sentence. The Event Horizon Telescope combines radio telescopes around the world to study the supermassive black hole at the center of the Milky Way, and hopefully it will teach us something about that black hole in relativity itself.
0: you so much, Chris. We have plenty of time for questions, but first I also have one more announcement. Um, We keep an email list of patrons of the public evening series. If you'd like to get emails about events at Stuart Observatory and uh, the schedule of public evening lectures, please feel free when you leave to put your email address on the sign-up sheet. Also, we sent such an email out last Friday, and some of the emails got bounced back. So if you didn't get a a message from us and you were expecting one, you should probably put your correct email address on there. All right, questions for Dr. Greer. Please. Now you you said that the uh,
1: South Pole Telescope was about 40 tons, is that correct? 40,000. 40,000 tons? It's a heavy piece of machinery. So, was that transported primarily by aircraft in pieces, or how was it assembled there? Everything comes down in the back of a C-130. The only, the only thing that can land at the South Pole, as far as I'm aware, that can carry cargo is, is a C-130. So, everything, I mean, you can drive down cold and look at them, but they're not very big. Um, everything came down in the back of one of those. So, the 10-meter the diameter dish, for example, has a backup structure made of carbon fiber, and then the individual panels are yay big or so. And then those panels are put on individually, for example. So almost a thousand aircraft flights just just for the telescope itself. Thereabouts. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a big operation. That, that said, the infrastructure at the South Pole, the U.S. has had a base there since the late 60s at least, even maybe even earlier. Um, I'm not exactly sure what they did, but it sort of turns out almost serendipitously that it's a great site for this kind of astronomy. The atmosphere is extremely dry. I had a slide for this. You know, you'd ask why bother. But this is a a measure of the atmospheric transmission as a function of frequency. And so higher is better if one, if you get one, one lets all the light through. Um, And so black is the South Pole Blue is the region where the ALMA telescope is in Chile, and red is Hanoi, Vietnam, which you can imagine is a fairly humid place. So you couldn't do this kind of astronomy at 250 gigahertz in Hanoi. You have to go somewhere dry, and the South Pole just so happens that, one, there's great infrastructure there, and two, it you know, uh, happens to be extremely dry. If you think Tucson has a dry heat, this is a dry cold.
0: Any other questions for Dr. Greer? Oh, yes, over here.
1: We live in a spiral galaxy, yes, which has a pretty clear plane and momentum. Is there any reason to believe that the rotation of the black hole would be outside of that plane? so I, I don't so so there's a couple of things going on here. Uh, one. A galaxy like the Milky Way tends to have 100 billion stars in it, ballpark. Um, and I said this thing is extremely massive, but it's only about 4 million stars worth. So it's, on the balance, it's not particularly massive on the scale of a galaxy. I don't have any reason to believe why its spin would have any correlation with the spin of the galaxy. That said, Every, basically, galaxy that we've looked at, other than the Milky Way, seems to have one of these things, too. Some of them are the most luminous objects known in the universe that we can see out all the way almost to the edge of the universe, quasars. We think those are supermassive black holes that just so happen to be in the middle of a very messy meal, where they are eating something and then spewing out lots of light and energy as it falls into them. So one of the questions is, well, why is star so faint? Why aren't... Why doesn't the Milky Way have such a huge jet? But every galaxy seems to have one. And what's more is that the heavier the black hole, the heavier the galaxy seems to be. This is called the M-Sigma relationship, if you happen to hear about it. That is that you can... There seems to be a very tight correlation between the mass of the galaxy and the mass of the black hole. And since the black holes are big, but they're still relatively wimpy on the scale of the galaxy, it's kind of a mystery as to as to why that is. And the thinking is maybe that... By figuring out why there's this correlation, we might understand a little bit something more about how galaxies actually form.
0: Oh, we have a question here. I just wondered if you could explain a little more about how these observations are going to clarify more about relativity, um, or could clarify.
1: So th- that that was very hand wavy there at the end. Um, we're all so. We're going to observe, and we're going to see what we see. The question is, what do... A theorist will probably give you a different sort of heading on this, but I'm an observer, so I'm going to go out, and what I see is what's actually there. It's up to the theorist, then, to say, well, what do you expect to find there based on the theories that we have? And Einstein, he's been gone a while, but um, relativity more generally says that that shadow that we see is going to be extremely spherical. It's going to be round. Um, and if you, if you look back and kind of squint at these, the two on the outside where, so E is the parameter. If E equals zero, that means we're in GR. And if E is not equal to zero, then we're doing something else. Um, those aren't circular. And so this is, this is kind of a very hand-wavy. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of possibilities that can open up that could give you non-spherical. Um, results like this, but then it's up to the theorist to sort of saying, okay, well, this is what would the observer see now. So, what sort of physics could explain this? And if we see a non-circular thing, general relativity cannot explain that. So,
0: okay, we've got a question up here. Gonna make me work for this. Um,
1: would this work? of the uh, telescope give us some insight into the distribution of dark matter in the galaxy and also near the black hole itself. And the reason why I'm asking is because I'm thinking that the black hole is sucking up ordinary matter but it could also suck up dark matter as well. So I have my questions basically to try to get us more enlightened about the distribution of the dark matter. Right. So, so dark matter is very important in galaxies. So, first off, this observation per se will not tell us anything about whether there's dark matter being sucked up. Um, there are many other observations that have confirmed the existence of dark matter. So, dark, I'm, there's there's two dark things, and the, the it's it's astronomer shorthand for we kind of really don't know what it is. Um, it. It behaves like matter, but we, it doesn't give off light, so we can't see a whole lot because we, you know everything astronomers basically know is a, from light. So it, it's some matter that we don't know a whole lot about. And simulations have shown that the dark matter distribution dominates the mass of a galaxy, but it tends to be fairly dispersed. There's not, It doesn't clump a whole lot, especially near the center of the galaxy. So. Whatever whatever these observations show, they won't have a lot to say on the dark matter. Some of the most recent results on dark matter have come out of work similar to the star kind of tracking the stars that I was talking about earlier. That's a much better way. You don't just do it right there in the center, but you start looking at stars further around, uh, further out in the disk of the galaxy. And that sort of gives you a handle maybe on um, how much dark matter there might be. I think Joe Bovey is, if you're curious about it, you might Google her name, B-O-V-Y.
0: One more question. Now, uh,
1: you kind of inferred something in the lecture. Uh, you basically have to have good observational weather at all sites that are being used during an interferometry mission, correct? You, you, you for, for any given baseline to work, you need good observations at both sites. So if you have three sites, for example, you'd, you'd like to have clear weather at all three, but sometimes you can get away if there's bad weather at one, but good weather in two. So you don't get the full reconstruction of the image, but you, st- you still don't, it's not a total washout from the time, you know all your organizational time. So, for example, in April, Karma had amazing weather. I, I did a lot of graduate work out at Karma on something else, and this was the best weather Karma has ever had. Uh, the weather in Hawaii was marginal, and the weather in Arizona was kind of even more marginal, but at the same time, we still got useful data from all of them but it was kind of touch and go there um, i won 't bore you with the details, but we have we have ten nights to decide, and we have to we get any five of those ten so on any given night it 's like, well, do we spend the night or do we not? Do we wait and hope that you look at weather maps and suddenly you become a meteorologist and say, "Well, that cloud looks like it 's going that way and then you know. but in the end things generally work out.
0: All right, if you've never visited our telescope in our original building, which is 91 years old, it's that big white building right outside the door here. The um, door is on the ground floor. There's a little light above it. You go up two flights of stairs and the telescope's open. If you've got the time, spend 15, 20 minutes, go up and look through the telescope. You'll enjoy it. I invite you to come to our next lecture, which is two weeks from tonight at 7.30 on September the 30th, Deshika Narayan, another one of our postdoctoral fellows, is going to talk to you about the brightest galaxies in the universe. So that's two weeks from tonight, September 30th. I will stamp student assignments down here. Dr. Holberg students, go see him. And let's thank Dr. Greer one more time. Thank you.